0: One of the things that I believe in very deeply is the importance in life of defining a win, of clarifying success, defining what we believe success is and what the win is in almost every situation. I think about it in terms of this church. Uh, I think about it because without knowing what we define as success, we can't know as people if we're making progress, right? And I think as human beings, we're designed to find meaning in life because we feel like we're making progress. We're working towards something and moving in a direction. And if we don't know what we're moving towards, what our goal is, then we're just busy spinning our wheels. And there's a difference in making progress and in being busy. There's a difference in being productive and being busy. And the only way that you know if you're being productive is you have to have a sense of what is the goal that we're shooting for right? You've got to have that. As a church, we talk about that quite a bit. We talk about it with our staff. We talk about it in departments. We have uh, an annual process now where we create goals, and those goals have to be uh, quantifiable. They have to be measured. They cannot be based on feelings. Uh, We ask questions like, how's the children's ministry going, or how's the youth ministry going? An unacceptable answer is, I feel like it's going well, right? Uh, for me personally, when there's ways that we look at as to uh, how is preaching going? Uh, is that is it feel like it's connecting with people? What are the ways we judge that and an answer is not, I don't know, I don't know if people like it. I feel like it's going really well. It's not an answer, right? How do you define the win and how do you, how do you quantify it? How do you measure it? How do you look at it in life? One of the most important parts of clarifying the win and defining the win is it forces you as an individual or as a family or as an organization to wrestle with what do we think is really important? What are the signs of success? And what are things that we don't pay attention to very much? Let me give you an example. In the church, the most traditional way that we measure mem- uh, uh, health and, and growth and uh, and a positive direction is we look at our membership numbers. How many members do we have as the church? Right. That's what pastors do. When we get together at our our rockin little gatherings, we'll kind of look at each other and be like, "Hey, where are you a pastor? And uh, what are you a pastor? What do you do? And uh, how many members does your church have?" Right. Uh, I'm speaking at a thing in San Diego in a couple of weeks, and the person who's introducing me sent me a list of questions to introduce me and part Part of what they ask, like, the first question, how many members does Covenant have? And the second thing is, how many members have you added in the last uh, three years? Because this is the ways that, like, it it validates, oh, this is someone that we should listen to, right? Membership is uh, something that is good. I believe in a sense, I believe people becoming members is a really good thing because without committing to the values and to the community uh, and to pursuing God in a certain place, you'll probably lack depth in your spiritual life. So I think membership is a really important thing, choosing an individual, choosing to become a member, but I don't believe that membership is a sign of health for a church. It is not a number I look at. I don't know exactly how many members we have, and I find it fairly unimportant how many names are on there, even though that makes me different. The reason that I don't look at membership as a sign of success is I know of churches that say on paper they have the same number of members that maybe Covenant does, but you could shoot a cannon off in worship on Sunday morning in their sanctuary and not endanger anybody's life. Just because their names on a list does not mean that the church is necessarily thriving. But that also doesn't mean that we just sit there and go, so it can't be measured. It's a spiritual thing. It's a church. You can't measure it. That's not true either. There are very real numbers that we look at. Instead of looking at membership, we look at things like Sunday morning participation. I think that's a much more important a judge of success and of a community thriving than membership. How many people are attending our worship services? How many people are attending the youth ministry? How many people are attending the children's ministry? How many people are involved in service projects and with our mission partners? How many people are involved in giving to the life of the church? Our church is growing. Therefore, our budget should be going. And if it isn't, and the amount of money we're giving away in the city does not continue to grow, then we need to ask some really hard questions about who we are and what we're doing these are the things that we look at that you can measure and quantify and see but you see what I mean like the part of the value is it isn't just knowing the win, but you have to wrestle with what do we look at and what do we don't what do we not look at I think this is true not just for organizations I think it's true for families I think it's true for marriages I think it's true for, small, true for small groups. I think that in these settings, you should have an idea in your marriage or in your dating relationship of what are we pushing for? What do we wanna see in five years? And how do we get there? How do we not just kind of do marriage, but how do we have a sense of growing and where we wanna go? How do we have a sense of this is what we wanna see for our children or our grandchildren? What are the things we wanna see in our small group? How do we quantify if a year or two from now, this is working or not, or are we just meeting? You see what I mean? There's a difference in those things. I believe in it. And I believe in defining the win even when it comes to spirituality. Now, I have a number of people that look at me like, oh, I don't like that. That makes it feel like you're bringing like boardroom MBA stuff into the church and you can't quantify people's spiritual lives and their growth. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. The question is, what do you look at? What are the fruit that you see in it? And today, in the series we're starting into called Gifts of Grace, we are going to spend nine weeks saying what the win is because defining the win is biblical. It is a biblical thing to clarify success, to define what the win is, to know what we are shooting for, and to ask ourselves are we making progress in that direction? The Apostle Paul writes, for in Galatians chapter 5 about what this win is, what this success is, and that's what we're going to bring up on the board today, the scripture passage that is going to guide us through this series. Paul does not give us a wishy-washy spirituality here, going, hey, you just do you and kind of come alive how you want to. Paul writes here, and he's going to be like, these are the things we should see in our lives as we go. All right. We're going to read Galatians 5, starting in verse 16, and this is what It says, It says, live by the spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh, for what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit, and what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not subject to the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, Jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. (laughs) I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. There is no law against such things. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here, we would hear your gospel, your good news today, and it would speak to us about the lives we are called to live. We pray for your leading and your guiding. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to bring the first slide back up and just leave it up here for a second and then we'll, we'll switch to the second side in a, in a second because I think it's going to be important for you uh, to see and to read some of the, the lists that are here. Again, what I think Paul's doing here is I think he's clarifying the win of what we should all want to see in our lives. What we should want to see in the lives of our children. What we should want to see in the lives of our grandchildren. What should we should want to see in our leaders in this world. What are the things we're looking for? He defines this. Now, What we're going to do, and in this series what we're going to do before we we look at this list, is there's nine fruit of the Spirit, and we're going to spend nine weeks in this series. And so we're going to spend each Sunday and week looking at one of the nine fruits of the Spirit, looking at what it is and asking how do we cultivate this more and more in our lives, okay? So we're going to look at the first one today, which is love. Paul is being very real, saying this is the win. We should be known for our love. How do we move towards that, understand that, make progress toward it? How do we cultivate it in our life? But what we see here is, before we get to the specific of love, is that there are these two general lists. Paul not only here defines and clarifies the win, he clarifies what we don't want to see. In fact, he gives more details about what we don't want to see than what we want to see. Um, I, I love the way Paul writes. I don't know if he was an attorney, um, but if he was, he, it, it's like, you know, he gives this exhausted list, and then at the end, it's like, and things like these. Like, don't think that it's just a legalistic list. There's also the thing at the end of like, anything that sounds like this or looks like this, there, if there's a nest at the end, probably, you just don't want to see it, right? And you're like... Now, when we look at this, what he calls the desires of the flesh, or what he says here now, the works of the flesh are obvious. When we read this list, if all of us are being honest, there are parts of this list that tug at our hearts. There are parts of this list that are probably more obvious in our lives than other parts of the list. And other people in here have different uh, parts of this list that are real to them. Rather than getting caught up in how he defines the loss on each individual one, I don't want to get into like what he means by sorcery and who we're looking for at that point. What I want to see is that there is a kind of commonality to these works of the, of the flesh, these desires of the flesh. Okay, And what is common in a lot of these, if you look through this list, is that they are all based around self-centered living. They're all based around this idea of this is how I want my life to work. This is what I believe life is supposed to be about and I want things to go my way. Take, for example, things like anger. Right? I get angry about all kinds of things. I get angry at times when I see what politicians are doing or what they're saying or how they're acting. And so I have times where I just try to walk away from reading blog posts or reading what's happening in the world or in the news because when things don't go the way I think they should, I can get angry about that. In the same way, I can get angry about little things, I can get angry about sports teams that I like when they don't do the thing that they're supposed to do because it's not how I think it should go. I can get angry at referees and shout at them in a television set even though they're 900 miles away and I can't affect anything going on in the game. I can get angry when it doesn't go the way I think it should. I can get angry about things like when my family decides to go to a movie and I have a movie I want to see and then my three girls outvote me and we go and watch something else. I don't get as angry about that as I do at a referee but I can still get a angry because it doesn't go the way I want it to. How about jealousy? My life doesn't look the way that someone else's life. I want what they have. I want the marriage they have. I want my kids to be able to say they've done what their kids have done. How about greed? I hold on to what I have. I'm gonna hold on to what is mine. I'm gonna live the life I want. I'm gonna go on the vacations I want. I'm gonna have the job that I want and I'm gonna hold on to what I have because it is mine. Quarrels, factions, these are all the same kind of things. What I want you to see in this is what links these together as you read through this list and how it applies to us is that there's usually a sense of life being about me and insisting that I'll be happier if people revolve around the orbit of my life, which is very natural to all of us as human beings. So as you read through that list, it's important to see what of these kind of start bubbling up and making sense or others might say, might be a part of what they see in you. And to see that in this list, as we look at it, that this represents the opposite of, even though we all wrestle with it, of how Jesus teaches us to live. It's the opposite of love. We see the word we're looking at today, the fruit of the Spirit, that love is not a feeling or, is a, or an emotion. We've talked about this as a church, that as Bob Goff writes, love does. Love is a verb, love is an action, and it is a verb about serving and sacrificing for those around us. It is the opposite of self-centeredness. We see Jesus, who is the embodiment of love, reflect this in the cross. We see it in, in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's waiting to be arrested. When he prays, Lord, Let this cup pass from my hands. He sees the suffering that is coming. He says, let this cup pass from my hands. That is the desires and the work of the flesh. I don't want this. He's saying, this is not what I want for my life. But then this amazing turn where he says, but not my will, but thy will be done. You see that? This is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer when he teaches us to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a different way of living than you just do you because that's what I feel, right? It's a different way of understanding it. Now, we've looked at this. Let's go to the next slide. What is it that that then links together the nine fruit of the spirit? If self-centeredness kind of links together the work of the flesh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity. Well, first of all, what we see is that we learn, and I think this is so cool. I really do think this is such a cool list of where we can get into it. Because it says a lot, first off, about God. If the work of the flesh is about us, what we see is that the work of the Spirit is the work of God. And this is important we understand from the beginning. When Paul's giving us this list, he's not saying you have to become this way, like you have to generate it. What he's saying is this is a sign that the Holy Spirit is alive in you, that you are abiding in Christ and that he abides in you. And that there is God shining forth from you. So the first off is that Paul is giving us in the scriptures, and I think this is just really cool, kind of the most detailed description of the attributes of God here. He's not saying you need to be loving. He's saying God is loving. First off, this is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, alive in you. God is the one doing this. God is the source of this. He's not saying that you need to be kind. He's saying God is kind. He's not saying that you need to be patient. He's saying God is patient. He's not saying you need to be generous. He's saying God is unbelievably generous. Sometimes God can seem like a mystery. In the Old Testament, God's like, I am the great I am. You will not name me and all these things. Paul here is going, no, we know who God is because of the spirit. God is these things. But while God is these things, this is also a list where it's clarifying the wind for us of going, this is also the stuff that's supposed to be in us. A really hard, if you take it honestly, but good challenge this week would be to read through these nine things, these nine fruits of the Spirit, and ask, are you becoming more like this or less? It would be interesting to look at the people around you who know you and ask the question, are you becoming more loving than you were 10 years ago or not? Are you kinder than 10 years ago? Are you more generous And that's something you can measure in one sense. Are you giving more away or not? Or are you clenching on to more? Here's a hard one for me. Are you more patient than 10 years ago? The answer to that, for those who know me best, is probably not. I'm actually probably less patient and more grouchy about things than I was 10 years ago. And I have to sit with that. And I think part of that list is Paul's going, this is what we wanna see. This is the win. This is an abundant life. This is the good thing. So to ask yourselves, and to maybe ask people you trust, are you moving more towards this or less? And last, it says something about God, who God is. It says something about us and what the win is for us. But lastly, it says something for us as a church of what we want to be producing. We want to be producing the thousands of people around the covenant orbit. We hope, if we're doing our job, that people are becoming more loving, becoming more patient, becoming more kind, becoming more generous, and this is really, really important in this day and age, and here's why. There's been some really interesting research that's come out recently, Um, I found it interesting, from the Barna Research Group. The Barna Research Group studies both culture and it studies religious trends in our culture. And one of the things that Barna's been talking about recently is some changes that are going on in American culture and the changes in attitude that non-Christians have towards Christians in America. What does the majority Austin culture feel about us today? And what Barna has said is, is that in their research for decades, there was a primary question that non-Christians had about people of faith, and the primary question that they had was, when they thought about Christianity, is it true? Is it true? And so we as the church sought to answer that. We sought to equip you for that. When like the Da Vinci Code came out, we were like, well, let's wait a minute. It's not just a conspiracy theory. Let's look at the Council of Nicaea. Let's look at how this thing came about. Let's understand the facts and history and be able to articulate an answer to that. When we talk about faith and why do we believe intellectually what we do, we've talked about people like Ravi Zacharias. We've talked about apologetics. We've talked about being able to explain our faith. And I want you to hear, I think all of that is a good thing, to understand and be able to articulate why is Christianity true. The interesting part is that the research of Barna has said that the primary question, however, is now changing in our culture. That the primary question non-believers have about us in Austin, Texas this morning is not primarily, is Christianity true? The primary question is, is Christianity good? Is Christianity good? Is our city a better place if there are more more churches? Now, we can talk and debate why that is and everything else. That's not the focus today. The reality is that is the question being asked, and the church has to understand how do we answer that? And we can answer that really well if we're sitting there going, this is the win. This is what we want. What is our win? What is success? We want people who are more loving. We want people who are more generous. We want people who are more kind. We want people who are gentle. We want people who have self-control. Gosh, would that be a great thing in this society in which we live in today? And wouldn't that be a better place? And if our people are going out to where they are in, where they live, work, and play as more generous, more kind, more loving, then our city at some level is becoming a more kind, more loving more generous more patient place including when we're riding in traffic and who wouldn't want a city that embodies that more and more and more this is the win, paul is saying this is success this is what we want to be forming people towards so the question that we close with today is so how do i become more loving that's the first fruit that we want to sit in today how do I become more loving? And I want to just conclude by saying that, that, that part about love that's hard and part about this fruit of the Spirit that's hard is that we're going to require a different framework for, as Christians as to how we understand our faith. And this is what I mean by a different framework. A good a mentor of mine um, and a close friend talked about that the, the, the framework for Christian discipleship and formation is what he called know-it-and-do-it discipleship. Know it and do it. This is what the Bible says, so you go do it. This is what we talked about on Sunday. They're action steps. This is what we go do, right? And our educational system works the same. Many of us like I learned how to do this, got this degree in 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 school, and now I go do the job, right? Know it and do it. It's a framework that makes sense for us. The problem is, is that when it comes to something like love, know it and do it doesn't work because. We can't say to you, your action step is to leave covenant this week. And this week, you need to love people more. Go discipline yourself, go do it. It is not gonna work if you leave here going, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna love people this week. That is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be so loving, it's gonna make people sick about how loving I am. Whether they want it or not, I am going to be loving. You will be loved this week, whether you're asking for it or not, because I'm gonna tell you that that's what success is. We've defined the win. Paul has defined the win. We succeed in this climate and in this family, and that's what we're gonna do. And so I am loving you this week. I know it and I do it. The problem, as my mentor pointed out, is that for people of faith, with a know it and do it world, is that there's this little word that causes a problem called sin. I know, I have knowledge about what the Bible says I'm supposed to do in my marriage. As a husband, it is very clear. I am to seek to outserve my wife. I just lots of times don't want to. Because I want to do what I want to do. I'm probably the only one in here and it's not that if someone looked at me, was like, well, why don't you just love more? And you're like, oh, if someone had just told me that, that's the problem, right? I know I'm supposed to be patient as a parent with my children. It's just lots of times. It's just really hard. <laughs> and I'm not. And it's not a question of if I just had more knowledge, I could do it. Rather than know it and do it, what we're going to end with today is an idea of a different sort of framework, both for today and in this series, which I want to talk about as more of receive and reflect. It's not so much know it and do it as it's receive it and reflect it. For instance, where do we start with love? Well, the scriptures are very clear that where we love is because we don't love because we generate love ourselves. The scriptures say we love because God first loves us. We love because God God is the source of love, God is love. So when we see what love is on the cross, we see love poured out. We learn what love is from God. We understand what true love is from God. And so what we need to do is not so much discipline ourselves to do it as we need to receive that love, celebrate that love, bask in that love, because the truth of the gospel, Tim Keller writes, is that you and I in this room, that the desires of the flesh are real. Tim Keller says the gospel is that we are more broken than we ever dared imagine, and yet also more loved than we ever dare imagine. God's love is not something we can just sort of drive by and skip by. It's going, yeah, I learned that in Sunday school. It's true. We need to receive it, actively receive it, and then we become love. Now, that might sound a little wishy-washy to some of you. And to be honest with you, I'm kind of more of a know-it-and-do-it person because it gives me clear action steps. So if you're like me and it's like, receive it and reflect it, Feels like kind of weak. I want to invite you to think about though that most of the real change in our lives works much more on a receive it and reflect it model than it does on a know it and do it. Let me give you an example. This summer, we went to my family and I went to Wales in Great Britain, where my wife is from. And at the end of every trip, when we go there, we do what we call as a high and low, which I know many of you know and do. Uh, it's a way of saying, you know, what was the high of our trip? What was the best part? And what was the low? What was the worst trip? And then we all talk about why. We've done this for years. Now that my kids are, are teenagers, they roll their eyes about it, but I still make them do it just because I enjoy that now. And um, and so we go through. And so this year, when we were coming back, Beth, my wife, who is who is Welsh, she grew up there. Um, was asked a question like, what is your low? And she told us about a moment that most of us had passed by. It was a moment when we were in a restaurant ordering food and the waitress at the end of the night said, can I just ask you guys a question? And she looked at Beth, she goes, I can tell they're American, but where are you from? <laughs> Bess said, what do you mean? She was like like your accent, like you're clearly not from Britain, you're clearly not from Wales, but it doesn't sound quite American either in the way you talk. So like, what, I'm just wondering, are you like Canadian? She's like, I spent some time in Canada when I was a student and it sounds a little Canadian. Beth's like, I'm from here. I'm from like three miles down the road. I grew up here, I've lived like half my life here. And the woman was like, ah, really? You don't, you don't sound like you belong here anymore. What she was saying is that the way Beth talks, the way that she forms words, the vocabulary she uses, she's like, you sound really American, and your accent sounds really much more American than it does Welsh. Now, at no point in our 20 plus years of marriage has Beth gone, I'd really like to lose my accent and talk more like you. In fact, it would have been weird if she had tried. It wasn't know it and do it, but she's caught it. (laughs) We've rubbed off on her. She's changed in how she articulates things. She changes in the vocabulary that's natural for her. She changes in the way her mouth forms words now because she's received it in a sense and is now reflecting it. Most great change in our life happens more that way than it does know it and do it. And so this week we're going to ask you to receive the love of God in very intentional ways. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to invite you into some daily scripture readings, and I invite you to, there's two slides, you can either take a picture of this or on the way out, uh, there are going to be some forms back there that have all of this written down, you can pick it up on the way out, or we're going to bombard you on Facebook uh, this week with this stuff anyway, so you're not going to escape this, okay? Um, This is what we're going to ask you to do, we're going to ask you for every day this week to spend 15 minutes receiving actively God's love. That's going to look like this. So we want you to schedule 15 minutes every day this week, like you would schedule a lunch. Don't get to like 9 o'clock and be like, oh, we're supposed to do that thing, right? Schedule a time every day for 15 minutes, like you would a lunch, like you would a coffee, and, and, and enter into that time. When you do it, turn off your phone. Unplug from technology for those 15 minutes. The world will continue to revolve around the sun if you don't get text messages for 15 minutes, okay? It will be okay? Turn off from that and start with a prayer asking to open to God's love. Then the passages that are on the next slide, uh, but we'll keep this up now. You're going to read the passages two or three times and take time each week to think about, maybe journal, what does this tell me about God's love? Read it differently. Sometimes read it quietly. Sometimes read it out loud, which might feel weird if you're by yourself, but do it. Uh, it we, can, in, we can abide in Scripture if we sometimes differently if we're speaking it out loud than just reading it ourselves. And third, close with a prayer saying, God, whatever God has imprinted on your heart about his love in that day, ask him to just kind of bind it into your heart so that you can reflect it throughout the day. Receive it and reflect it versus know it and do it. Because make no mistake, Paul is not advocating wishy-washy spirituality, He is saying there are very clear things that we ought to see in our lives to really be living, to really be alive. And so this day, this week, may we move towards that win. For our sake, for our families, for this city, and for this world. There's nothing short of that that we're searching for in this series. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would lead us, guide us, shape us, mold us as your people. We pray that we would receive this week the love you have for us and reflect it to the world around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.